You're listening to The Fully Occupied Show, presented by Occupier. Hey everyone, Matt from Occupier here. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to another episode of the Fully Occupied Podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure you subscribe on your favorite listening platform or just shoot us a note at marketing at occupier.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on future guests, topics you'd like to hear about, ask us any questions you have, or just say hi. Enjoy the show. How you doing? Welcome to Fully Occupied. Hey Matt, nice to chat with you. Yeah, it's been a while, man. I, I think... Uh, I think I last saw your face walking the halls of the WeWork that we both uh, occupied probably more than a year ago at this point. More than three years ago, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> that well, was three spaces ago. Three spaces ago. Well, that, well that's a good thing because you're probably growing, which is awesome. Um, but let me ask, do you guys actually have an office right now? Or are you guys all kind of floating around remote? That's a great question. You know, it's we're all floating around remote by necessity because no one wants to go into the office. Our office was downtown at 109 State Street. And one of the big things that we always looked for in an office, because we had millennials working for us that never wanted to drive, is they wanted public transportation. And so our office was downtown. Now, nobody wants to take public transportation. So even though we have an office, no one's in it and it's completely empty. And I don't know when we're gonna reoccupy it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, unfortunately, there's no crystal ball. We've talked a lot about that with other people on the show. Um, it just seems like it's getting further and further away at this point. But anyways, we can reserve the uh, coronavirus discussion for another episode. Um, yeah. why, I think people are sick of coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no pun intended there. Um, why don't you give everybody an idea of who you are, uh, what your company Lease Pilot is and does, and Give us kind of the background story as to how, how it came into existence. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share. So I'm Gabrielle Safar. I'm the founder and CEO of Lease Pilot. And my background is I'm a commercial real estate lawyer. I spent the bulk of my adult life working at large law firms doing deals for institutional landlords, you know, doing all the stuff that lawyers do from acquisitions, dispositions, JV agreements, and leases. And so um, I was fortunate enough early on in my career to be generating my own business. And the law firm where I was at made the sort of mortal error of hiring <laughs> me a business development coach. And that business development coach really challenged me to think about, you know, what do you want to be long-term? What do you want, what impact do you want to make and as I thought about that and I thought about what I did on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, it, I got reduced my life down to, as I was drafting leases in particular for my clients, I was always too slow no matter what I did, no matter how efficient I was, I was too expensive. And right. at the end of the day, what was my work product? It was about 120 pages of words that no one cared about. So I said, okay, who am I? I'm a high price, labor intensive, hyper educated person delivering a product that's totally irrelevant. And I thought, is that the impact that I want to have? No. And so <laughs> right. it, it was out of that realization is uh, where sort of lease pilot 
came into play. Um, and so the thought process behind lease pilot was that in commercial real estate, leasing is the lifeblood of what landlords do. And that process just takes way too long, costs way too much money and is entirely opaque. And so mm -hmm. lease pilot is all about helping lawyers and negotiators draft leases radically faster with a ton less effort and then making the underlying information in those leases easily accessible and useful. And that's what we do. Cool. So you had this like existential epiphany while you were doing that job as a human <clears throat> and not only kind of felt like that wasn't re your real calling in life, but there's got to be a better way to do this. Yeah. Um, and when did you realize that like technology would be a good avenue to take to solve that problem? Was it after talking to a bunch of potential customers or was it just living in your own skin and knowing that, look, I would pay money for this as a user? Um, it, well, I read a lot and this, advisor and coach that I had recommended I read a couple books, one of which was The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. And I'm fortunate enough to say, just by serendipity, Clayton Christensen's fund wound up being our largest investor, which is nice. pretty amazing. And the other person I read was a guy, Richard Susskind, who wrote a book, Tomorrow's Lawyer. And the thought process behind both of those books was that lot in lots of instances, the way things are done today makes certain, I'd say, players in the industry incapable of seizing the future. And so when I read those books and they did talk about technology, it just became very obvious how computers could take advantage of patterns in behavior way more efficiently than people can. You know, you were a leasing broker and you negotiated tons of leases. The reality is there's a market for, for leasing in space, whether it's retail, office, or industrial. And the way right. that people negotiate deals, there are certain conceptual things that sort of play out the same way, even though the words might be different. If you're doing a TI allowance, like it's structured in a certain way. You have draws, you have an amount, you can have certain buckets where you can use the money for, like that doesn't change deal to deal. And so the thought process was, let's use software to you know, facilitate those patterns in drafting behavior to radically speed things up. And then at the same time, build a platform from the ground up that gives lawyers flexibility or negotiators. We have plenty of customers that don't have legal teams drafting leases, um, but you can have negotiators customizing deals at the same time. And so when I started thinking about the technology solutions, they were just so painfully obvious that it was one of those moments where I just couldn't restrain myself from going in and providing this solution. Right. <clears throat> so like where, like, where did you start? Did you start talking to lawyers? Did you start talking to the landlords themselves? Cause you have, owner of the property is probably the end, end beneficiary of this, right? Because they're paying the $700 an hour rate to the uh, external counsel to do the job. But yet that 
lawyer actually is the one that's, you know, benefiting from the speed up of work. So who did you talk to first? Yeah, our customers are all the owners. And mm-hmm. the reason for that is just what you say. They're the ultimate beneficiary of everything. Um, they're the beneficiary of access and visibility of data and the leasing information and their workflow. They're also the beneficiary of speed. What our customers care about is you can get a lease signed in half the time using something like lease pilot because you're eliminating so many different bottlenecks in the drafting process. And it really, we have data to show a 70 day process goes to 35 days using a system like lease pilot. It's pretty to get from start to finish on a from lease. LOI to sign lease. LOI to sign yeah, lease. LOI to gotcha. sign lease, you know, 70 days is not uncommon. And we have lots of customers where we can show that gets cut down to 35 days. And so the owner is the beneficiary of that. As a side note, we didn't believe our customers when they were telling us they were seeing that big an impact. Um, <laughs> and the reason we didn't believe them is because look at, there's not 35 days on your side even that we can eliminate. There's too much going on on the tenant side. And, you know, today we're not doing anything with the tenant. You know, this is all a landlord right. tool. And what we learned was there's this compounding dividend of responsiveness when you cut three days off of the LOI to first draft out cycle, so you go from three business days to same day, your tenant is more responsive to you. And when the tenant's more responsive, you actually keep the benefit of that increased responsiveness throughout all of the cycles of the lease. And so it's just a psychological phenomenon that even marginal increases in speed yield more speed which yields more speed. And then there's this virtual cycle of responsiveness and magically, you know, half the process, half the time is gone, which is amazing. Think about 35 days. It's in most cases it's rent. Oh yeah. And it's also just like commission. So I'm thinking about it from the broker's perspective. If I'm a tenant rep broker and I know that when I bring my client to this owner, that they're going to, generate a lease document the day that we get a LOI signed, I'm thinking to myself, my hard work is pretty much done here, right? I advised them through this negotiation. We found the space. Uh, we got to terms. We got them comfortable with the landlord. And now it should be smooth sailing, right? All the terms have been hammered should. out for the most part. Yeah, should. <laughs> yeah. And, and if I know, though, that like, hey, you know, landlord XYZ is going to take me two weeks to get a lease draft because of whatever backup they have, the old process, but landlord ABC over here is going to pump me a lease document day one that, which by the way, you know, could get negotiated faster because it's structured in, in your system. Then I am going to be largely incented to get that deal done as fast as I can. So I think there's like this downstream benefit as well to all of these other stakeholders that need, um, the process to move fast. It's not just the landlord and maybe I'm speaking to the choir here, but you know, you're, you think about all the stakeholders that get kind of kicked into gear after that LOI is signed. It's the, it's the architect that needs to draft the, the plans. It's the project manager that needs to get into the space. It's, you know, it's the tenant that needs to mobilize their, their internal resources. So 
there's this massive benefit to getting that lease signed as fast as possible. Yeah, we've heard a lot from the construction teams that they can't start the architectural and construction process until a lease is signed. So even if someone's not taking occupancy sooner, the idea that the construction teams have more certainty about what their construction planning needs to entail, that's a huge downstream benefit. The same thing with the landlord's leasing team. You know, the sooner leases are signed, the more clarity you have over the leasing plan and the stacking plan for the building. So long as there are big openings in the building, it becomes hard to juggle who fits where. As that puzzle becomes more firm and put in place because deals are signed, it makes it easier for the leasing teams to put people in space. I got to say, one of the things that I haven't done well is I haven't reached out and engaged the brokerage community as well as we should have. And that's on my list of things to do because they're huge beneficiaries of this system. You know, taking friction out of transactions allows brokers to do more deals and allows brokers to add more value because they can spend a lot more of their time finding space and the right solutions for their clients. So that's, that's on my to-do list is to engage the brokerage community. Yeah. I mean, you basically just verbatim conveyed the value proposition of occupier for the broker because we're, we're making that same phenomenon possible on the earlier end of the transaction. Whereas you guys are coming in when that LOI is hammered out or that during that process, we are providing tools to that broker and tenant far, far before the lease gets signed, you know, site selection, negotiation, picking your landlord, evaluating markets, uh, comparing proposals. It's the same thing, right? You're, you're, you're basically allowing people to do more work in less time, which would then, you know, uh, indicate that they could go out and find more business and provide better service to their customers. It's the same value proposition. So from the landlord's perspective, that's a really good insight about the stacking plan of a building. Cause it's like a chessboard in most, in most cases, right? Like there's not, it's not just, I'm making this decision on this one space in a, in a vacuum, whatever I do with this tenant might impact other conversations I'm having in my portfolio. So, you know, there's, there's so many other ancillary kind of, dominoes that fall as a result of speeding up the process. That's why it's, it's, it's so much fun talking to you. I enjoy a lot talking to the DTS team as well, because all of us come from the industry and we all were, I think of myself principally as a real estate person before being a software person. Cause that's where I spent most of my life is, is doing real estate work. And so we have this level of understanding of what people do on a day-to-day basis. And I think in particular between the occupier platform and what you're trying to accomplish and what lease pilots trying to accomplish, we come at this from two different sides, but it's one problem. The friction in transacting isn't a landlord problem. It isn't a tenant problem. It's an industry problem. And over time, yep. you know, I'm looking forward to finding the right venues for us to start to collaborate and think about what are all the different angles that people are sort of solving for this global problem for the real estate industry writ large. And how are we going to sort of band together as an industry to 
take friction out of the transacting process and make the underlying information in these agreements that we're putting together easily accessible and totally visible. So ultimately, the place that we get to is a much more liquid and transparent real estate market, which is a huge, huge benefit, um, not only to the real estate industry, but to the financial markets, to the overall functioning of the economy, not to get sort of too big picture, but as everyone says, real estate's a big asset class and it affects people's everyday lives. And we have massive needs as our economy to deal with huge infrastructure and challenges and the way buildings are put together, whether it's retrofitting buildings because of environmental needs or dealing with the challenges caused by you know, driverless cars and structured parking going away. There needs to be massive amounts of capital moving into the real estate industry. And the only way to make that happen is having a very liquid industry that has as little friction as possible. And that's what, that's what we're in this for, big picture, is to be part of that solution of creating an industry where there's a lot less friction than there is today. And today there's a ton of friction. Yeah, it's, it's akin to kind of turning an oil tanker around in, in the harbor, right? It takes a massive effort. Like this is a huge, you know, $20 trillion plus industry that, like you said, needs to move closer to efficiency. It's going to take years. I mean, it's already underway. Like you said, platforms like ours, like BTS, like Lease Pilot, like others are in existence to get to that ultimate goal of transparency. And that's not necessarily to say that the industry needs to be like completely disrupted and brought online, but um, it, it just can't continue to function the way it functions in, in, in today's world. I mean, what we're seeing from the current environment with kind of forced remote work um, as, as a function of COVID, it's, it's been an actual benefit for our, our business because people, not just like the real estate folks, but just business people are realizing that they need a online uh, portal access to like do whatever they need for their real estate, whether that's just accessing lease data or negotiating a lease or finding a space with their broker. I mean, eventually it all needs to get online. And essentially what that means is, you know, software is going to come and structure a lot of this data and eventually that data could be moved around between platforms so that companies, you know, have access to more information and decisions get made smoother and faster. And as a result, the macro real estate market becomes a little bit more liquid and transparent. Um, but what I just described obviously is, is, is years off. So like if we, if we kind of zoom into today, it sounds like your software is pretty intense. Like talk about how hard it is to build what you've built. Um, and in, in, in what some of the problems are that you had to overcome in order to actually like get people to buy into this concept. <laughs> That's a great question. And uh, I'm glad you asked it because it's something like so many people don't appreciate when you look at software, it so often looks easy and that's like an accomplishment. When you make your software look easy, that means you did a good job, but it's not easy. The challenge with something like LeasePilot is that if you think about, you know, technology, big picture, and you look at something like a document, 
documents a technology. It's a means of taking inputs of labor, time, energy, and transforming them into something of higher value. And so for us, the de tech, a document was the traditional means of technology for structuring agreements and transactional relationships. You would put a bunch of letters together on a page so that people understood what they agreed to. You would authenticate those pages with signatures and you can move those pages around so you could transfer that information. And then you can put that information in a file cabinet to retrieve it later. So that's a, that's a technology. And we're right. ripping and replacing that couple thousand year old technology and replacing it with a database. And so how do you do that? Well, the way that we had to do that is we've needed to eliminate all of the sort of legacy components of the way that people draft documents while at the same time making them feel like they're doing nothing different. And what I mean by that is the fundamental element of using Microsoft Word and putting an agreement together is analog. You string together letters. And those letters aren't structured in and of themselves. It's a person reading those letters structures them in their mind. And so the document has no fundamental structure unless you're doing natural language searching and you have a computer trying to replicate a person's mind. What LeasePilot does is we build documents from structured information, taking advantage of the fact that leases, and all we do are office retail and industrial leases, have a logical structure and patterns. And that allows us to take our customers' forms and structure them from inception and you build a lease and lease pilot. But we know as practitioners, structured information is too inflexible to allow people to complete their deals. And the best example or what documents do so well is that they're flexible because you can rearrange words in any way that you need them. So we needed to build a system on our own that allowed us to build leases from structured information and give individuals the ability to customize their deals by manipulating text just the way they would in a document without eliminating mm. the structure that we created. That's super hard. It was a super hard problem. And the solution was that we've created, for us, a lease is a report with 1,500 to 2,000 data segments that are getting pulled from a database at any point in time. But we put a film over that that allows individuals to change the text as if it were a Word document. And then those text changes get tied back to the database so we can capture them, structure them, move them, and report them. That's how we're able to produce on-demand lease abstracts. You can produce a lease abstract on a first draft of a lease. And when you need to send that to the CFO of a technology company to send a lease, and they don't want to read the lease, they say, give me the high points, you can send them an abstract. That's how we're able to send lease data directly from LeasePilot into MRI, or JD Edwards or other applications into a data warehouse with zero abstraction because you're not abstracting the lease. Yep. You're actually taking the lease and the data elements and putting it directly into MRI. And we do that today for customers like 
EQ office and Boston properties. That's a, that was a big piece of technology to create and it's hard. And we're, we're always juggling between the desire to create the maximum amount of flexibility, which pushes back against, you know, the value of having structure. And so over time, as the technology gets better and better, we're able to provide, you know, more seamless drafting, more and more flexibility with less and less cost to the structure. Yeah. That was a long answer. And sorry. What's interesting. No, it makes a lot of sense because the data of that abstract, that's everybody's data. It's the landlord's data. It's the tenant's data. It's the lender's data. It's, it's the lenders, it's the brokers, they, everybody that insurance touched that companies? document throughout that process, the insurance company. So it's interesting that like you guys are taking it um, from one angle. We're taking it from the tenant's angle. But at the end of the day, we're all structuring that same piece of data, that same set of data for the use of our end users. When in fact, shouldn't there just be like one universal system that handles everything so that there doesn't need to be like a hundred different software vendors that are structuring the same information. Cause like if we play it out for our perspective, if we're, if our, if a tenant is using our software to structure their lease admin data, they're going to take that PDF lease. We're going to abstract it for them. Had they negotiated their lease through lease pilot, that whole step doesn't need to exist. It's already structured. So just like you push data to MRI, you could push data to our system and the same set of data is managed only once. It doesn't have to get recreated into another Absolutely. system. Absolutely. Absolutely. We should be pushing yeah. data into a system like yours because at the end of the day, it is lease information and lot, there are lots of different stakeholders in a lease. Over time, I guess at some point, either there's going to be some champion who's going to have the market power and the capital to be able to set some standards for everyone's benefit. And who knows if that's just a private set of data standards that everyone has so that our softwares can talk to each other more efficiently. The big challenge is, you know, groups need to create through APIs, these connections, and those connections can be pretty tough to wire together when systems can be very customized because you don't have like the way that in MRI rent is referenced isn't the same way that rent is referenced in lease pilot and isn't the same way that you're going to be referencing rent in occupier and isn't the same way that VTS or Salesforce does it. So at some point we can all have our different applications, but there needs to be like a master set of data standards that we could all write our APIs to um, like a Rosetta stone that would communicate. And the question is who's going to be the right person to do that. I know that there's a group called Oscar that's trying to set real estate standards, but without having, you know, a real consortium of people committed to this, that won't happen. I think that's something that's, that's off in the future. And maybe it coalesces around blockchain um, because you can start pegging information 
to you know a, a verifiable source that's unhackable yeah i think i think you're right i think it's a it's a really hard nut to crack because you also need to factor in changes to the real estate environment like what one interesting trend that we've been seeing in our platform is on the specifically on the retail side um a shift to like pure um sales-based rent structures so percentage rent is obviously a common part of a retail lease but some of them also have traditionally have had a base rent component to it with a break point and and a percentage now, now we're seeing like straight up percentage rent across the board for some of these um, retailers that are expanding and just, you know, just from the macro environment of, of, of what's going on today. So the, the data structures could kind of shift with the markets and that could kind of like impact any sort of standard that needs to be kind of maintained, you know, through an Oscar or like whatever it is. So it has to be flexible too, right? It can't just be, um, yeah, I don't think it'll ever be as structured and as fluid as like the stock market, but it has to be flexible enough um, to account for changes in in kind of market volatility. You know, I think like of it that. a little bit the information. I think an analogy is the hardware industry, where every company has a different dongle, right, um, or a different a, a, a different endpoint that you push into your system, but then. Now and again, you have these groups that put together, you know, we're going to create a standard for USBs. And then that becomes a standard that Sony, Apple, Microsoft use over time, or you then switch from the USB to the USB-C, which is a smaller one. And there's a period of time where everyone's still, some are using USBs and some are using USB-Cs. But over time, the hardware starts to coalesce around standards for the way the peripherals interact with those machines. I, I kind of see the way that information is going to be structured a bit similar. We have rent a different way. You maybe state rent a different way, but over time, you know, we'll coalesce around a standard for certain pieces of information. And then there'll be an innovation where there'll be a better way to do it. And then, will get out of compliance and a standards body is going to have to come in and help us coalesce and bring them together. But if you look at the, again, the hardware and peripheral analogy, it took a long time for, you know, standards to develop and then companies to follow. So it's doable, um, but it'll take time. Yeah. So t talk a little bit about what you guys have learned in, in, your years of being in business, how maybe the business model has shifted for you guys. Cause I know that we recently spoke and your, your initial target customer was an enterprise um, type of deal from a SaaS perspective. You're going after these big landlords that might own hundreds of malls or office buildings. And obviously that's a top heavy type of uh, customer range. What have you guys learned throughout the course of selling into that market and how that might change over time and, and what are the future plans? What we've learned is like many businesses, being able to have a diverse customer base reduces risk. And so we were very heavily concentrated on 
like the largest landlords, which is a relatively small group. And the reason for that was, as you can imagine, structuring people's lease forms so that when they create a lease and lease pilot, they're using their lease. We have no language of our own. Lease pilot is a technology company. And so we needed to take their form and wire it to our model of a lease. And when we gave customers the ability to really configure the model of the way they wanted their lease structured, that created a big services job on lease pilots part. And the only people that could justify yep. that level of service were larger landlords doing tons and tons of leases. Over time, we were able to learn by looking at our platform that that level of variability in the configuration of the lease model was unnecessary. And it's a bit abstract without seeing a demo and looking at the software, but the idea is that there's 15 ways that I can come up with structuring rent. You can have rent increase by the square foot. You can have increase, you can, you know, increase over an escalation. There's a gazillion ways that, that you can do it. But do people actually do it always on a, in a gazillion ways? No. The market coalesces around a limited number of ways of representing things. And so with our initial designs, we had encapsulated pretty much trying to get every permutation of the way that people deal with rent or percentage rent. But we were able then to learn mm -hmm. that really of those 15 ways, people are only using two or people are only using three or 80% of the time people are using these two and three. So what that allowed us to do was to come up with our own standard model of the way a lease should be structured. We still use a customer's words and their lease forms, but we've limited the number of ways for one of our products um, so that rent gets expressed in one of two ways. And that's it. It either works for you or doesn't. And if that works for you, we can sell a product that is really not configured that much and the price can come down and the setup time and the services can be reduced so we can serve a much broader swath of the market that has less customization because they're not doing you know, 500 leases a year. They're doing 20 leases a year. Yep. And so we're able now to serve those customers. And my focus is being able to go out to the market and being able to serve those middle market customers that aren't necessarily as large because in many cases their unit costs are way higher than the largest landlords because the largest landlords have invested in teams and systems that they're just by definition more efficient. They greatly benefit from our software and that's our core customer base right now are the large owners. But the mid-sized to smaller owners, it's just the ROI is massive because their unit costs are so high. Right. I mean, that's, that's the biggest problem in trying to change the mindset of this industry is that 80-20 rule, like you said, 80% of people follow the same path to that structured data, yet there's that 20% outlier who wants configuration. They want things to be the way they do it they haven't been willing to kind of change their 
perspective on the problem to arrive at this kind of conclusion that, look, there's a better way to do this. This well, would make it that much easier. We can accommodate them. It's so just they're gonna, they, ha- they, have to, they have to pay more. Um, it's gonna, and it's I, gonna I be, think yeah. what's interesting <laughs> is the situation where you have a customer where one system can accommodate 80% of what they do. They don't need to change anything. You can just say this software right. won't work for at this price point. 100% of your outcomes. And I think many people's, the way they think about technology is it's got to work. It's an all or nothing thing. It either applies for everything or doesn't apply for everything. And to me, that's a short-sighted way to look at a technology investment. If you can solve 80% of your problem, that's a big win. You know, and then if you do 20% right. the old-fashioned way, okay, you do 20% the old-fashioned way. And then you learn, and then you might say either that 20%, we didn't need to do it that way, or yeah, we really need to do it that way. Let's upgrade and pay more for something that's more customized, and we can get that incremental benefit. So that's the way we're trying to change our sales model, which was before we were going and saying, we'll, we'll deal with 100%, because our customers were, were driving us to that. I think it's natural, especially lawyers are naturally attracted to the edge cases. <laughs> They're... They don't think about the commodity stuff, which takes up 90% of their time. We're all attracted to the edge cases like because we remember those. They're painful. Yeah. It's, uh, it's that old adage that, like, what, perfection the is good. the enemy don't of let better perfection or something be like the that. Energy, I probably, probably butchered good. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what we're working on with our customers. Say, let us focus right. on that 80% that we can easily handle at a low cost rather than trying to get 100% of everything and driving the whole cost of the system up. Now, some of our customers say, listen, that's what we want. We're big and, and we want everything. We'll provide that for them. Cool. Um, and the time we have left here, um, let's talk about some of the stuff that you're seeing as you aggregate data across your platform, because i got to imagine that's going to be an interesting play for you guys down the road. Um, I've been following your posts on LinkedIn, and, and you had a pretty cool insight about um, – the trends in, in renewal negotiations based on what's happening in the lease pilot. Talk a little yeah, bit about thank that. Thank you for, for bringing that up. I think it's a really interesting story. At this point, because of the amount of leases that we're processing, like, almost nobody sees more leasing than lease pilot does. Now, this year we'll do at least 1,500 plus transactions, um, which wow. is a good swath of the market to observe. And what we've been seeing is that, you know, up leading up to March, we had a very sort of healthy transaction volume of new leases where new leases were exceeding renewals on our system. And I think that's a function of two things. One, I do think there was an expectation of rising rents. And so, Lots of people were letting tenants go and signing new leases at higher rates. But two, our customers tend to skew towards doing more new leases. Um, but then there was a radical shift in March when the coronavirus hit and transaction volume plummeted um, in both cases in April. Mm. And then in April, there was this interesting crisscrossing of the curves for amendments and renewals 
excuse me, amendments and, um, and new leases. Yeah. Where you had people, new leases, new leases yeah. were trending way down their previous trend line, but amendments skyrocketed. And I don't call these renewals because they're not really renewing space. They're just redoing their, their leases because, you know, the environment had changed and they need to restructure their relationships with their landlords. Now, what we saw was over the months, like through peaking in like September, that just that number was increasing and increasing. And now that number has come down. And so the number is of amendments is it reintersected with the new leases and new leases have been going up. So the shape of that curve, if you look at it from the, amendments is a hump it's just this curve and the Mm. question that i've been thinking about and talking with customers about is is it over or is that the first of two humps does it look like a camel with two humps or a camel with one (laughs) hump and what i'm hearing is i i I believe the data indicates that we're gonna have a two hump camel because the first set of amendments were largely driven by people saying like WTF, what's going on? How do I handle this environment? Let's kick the can down the road. Because expectations about the future were so uncertain. I think it's very hard to transact long-term. Now, what I expect is going on is people have made their temporary deals. Once there becomes some certainty about the future, the deals are going to, I think they're going to skyrocket again as people restructure things for longer term because they understand where their business is. And I'm trying to take this opportunity. I've talked to so many retail landlords and other landlords where they said, God, I wish I had lease pilot when we were doing, um, you know, these gazillion of restructurings, it would have been a lifesaver. And I'm trying to tell them it's coming again, buy it now because you'll be in a much better position in April when you're redoing all of this. Yeah, it's like everybody's going to run to Costco again and hoard toilet paper. Everybody, every landlord should run to your website and sign up for a demo because they need to, they need to be, prepare themselves Absolutely. for the uh, second hump. I was uh, talking to a, a broker the other day, tenant rep guy, and I think you're right on this uh, two hump prediction because uh, the example he gave me was that they had a tenant that was expanding like rapidly, they were going to double in size, their footprint. And then COVID hit and they literally let their lease expire and sent everybody home to work. And they went and they just leased this tiny little outpost space of like 2000 feet just to have like an address. And um, they've basically come back to their broker and said, okay, like we're predicting that it's going to be like September of next year when, um, things are going to start to normalize again. So that's when we're going to go out and look for our new headquarters again. And oh, by the way, we, we're going to want twice as much space as we originally had. Um, so that pretty much kind of falls in line with what you were saying. So if that's, and, and that's a high growth tech company releasing office space. So if, if that is any indication of kind of like how that hump is going to come back, there will be this trough probably between now and call it mid next year when companies are going to go back into kind of just figure it out survival mode on leasing. 
and then there should be hopefully another pop of, yeah, of actual leasing that comes out of it. That landlords should be like learning from the summer and the spring and saying, okay, let's prepare for what's to come in the future. I think that would serve groups very, very well and would put them in a position when they're cutting long-term deals to negotiate the best deals for themselves. I couldn't agree more with that. Well, cool. Well, Gabriel, this has been an awesome conversation, my friend. Um, it's always good to hear your voice and I'm glad you guys are still killing it out there. We're rooting for you. And I think that uh, eventually we'll all arrive at this, this more liquid real estate market. But in the meantime, um, keep crushing it and, and uh, you know, tell, tell the team I will that do that. I said hello. You too. And I'm looking forward to our first integration where we're sending data um, to tenants to run their leases through your system. I'm looking forward to that. We'll get there, my friend. Talk to you later, Matt. Bye. All right, Gabriel. Take care.